Lord of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I know you're shocked to hear that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we've been in this series equipped. We've been looking at every angle that we can possibly from a biblical aspect is what has God provided for us to equip us with the, with the tools necessary to just arrive in life. This isn't about your best life now. This isn't about anything like that. This is simply what did God give us for the mission that God has called us to. That's really what it comes down to. And so God has given us an authority on this earth. We are his hands and his feet. With that comes the authority that he's given us. And with that comes the tools we need to successfully be his hands and his feet. Fair enough? We are his mouthpiece. And so we began looking at the different aspects of this and what God has given and how God had given us, as an example, the armor. How we went through that for several weeks, looking at the armor piece by piece, how they work a cohesive unit. They were not individual pieces, just pick this one up, not that one up, you know, things like that. It's kind of like playing football. If you throw on shoulder pads, but you don't wear the helmet, guess what? They're going to end well for you. Now, you can put on the helmet, but not the shoulder pads, guess what? Probably not going to end well for you, although you've probably got a better chance in without the help. You see, every part of that locked into one another. It was crucial. It worked as a cohesive unit. Take one away, you've got a problem. It's no different. I was just reading something the other day where a gal had been going through this, this series of depression and things like that for a very, very long time, and she just couldn't figure it out because she believed God and whatnot. Well, there was a minister that was given her the Lord told her, it's like, you, you have your shield. You have no shield. And she didn't recognize this, and she's like, oh my goodness. It was the key component that she was missing. Everything else she had right. It's not a matter of getting everything perfect. It's a matter of recognizing where we are as an individual. Are we equipped with what God has given us? We do a lot of mouth movement, but there's not a lot of substance behind our words. We fast forward this into 1 Corinthians 14, talking about spiritual gifts. It says, pursue love, but desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with the tongue, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. We've gone through all of these gifts, the nine individual gifts laid out here in 1 Corinthians 12 and whatnot. And then we turn our attention over to this prophecy thing. Understanding that these gifts are meant to be used as a cohesive unit. They work together. We're talking about the body of Christ, the church assembly. When it comes together, this, this direction is specifically be give, being given on how we, when we come together, the gifts that we should have, how to operate them. There's all these uh, correction that, that Paul is bringing to the Corinthian church. So they're meant to work one after another, one in cohesion with another. But we've turned our attention primarily to prophecy. When we look at this edification, exhortation, and comfort, it, it, it's basically this. Build, or the act of building, to advise strongly or urge, or to encourage or console. We're looking at this aspect, and what we, we begin to understand is that what we're putting our hope, faith, and trust in are the promises of God. That's the comfort. That's the exhorting part. That's the edifying part. It's not the words that are being spoken. It's who the words are coming from that matter. You can read anything and feel better for a minute, right? Hallmark cards have made millions of dollars of writing stupid little sayings and then selling you on them. Like, we've got this obligation. You give a gift, you have to give the card. But you didn't write the words, 
So why is it such a big deal? This isn't me pouring my heart out to somebody. I give my wife flowers with this, this amazing poem that I wrote. That will never happen. <laughs> but if I did, it means a lot more than here's the flowers that somebody else grew and cut and arranged really nicely, and here's the card that somebody else made and printed and all of that. I really did nothing but buy this stuff, but thanks for the credit. But we take comfort in these words. We, motivational speakers. You guys ever gone to a motivational conference? They drive me crazy because they're all the same thing. Like, it's all hype. And what do they do? Like, Tony Robbins. You guys know who Tony Robbins is, right? He's like super well-known. He's, he's in this business world. He's this motivational guy. He's grabbing somebody and pulling more out of them than they, they knew what they had in them to begin with. And they'll tell you like, man, when I left that conference, I felt like I could run through a brick wall. I was unstoppable. All of this stuff. These words are nothing more than flattery. The substance of them is found in the individual who does something with those words. In the case of prophecy, I don't care who says what. I care where the message came from. We looked at false prophecy and true prophecy. False prophets and true prophets. One who prophesies falsely does not make him a false prophet because it's the intent of the heart. So here we are looking at this. What is edifying? What is exhorting? What is comforting? I'm telling you guys, we've got this misnomer here in the New Testament church today that every uh, prophecy that is given in today's world has to be flowery and make you feel good. That's not the point. The point is, who gave the message? The message is grounded as the word of God in the promises of God. And that is edifying, exhorting, and comforting. When Jeremiah is given this prophecy that, that God had told him that I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, they're going through a time where they are in captivity. This is not good times. He's telling them, get comfortable. You're going to go through this. This is your judgment. But I've not forgotten you. I will always leave a remnant. I will bring you through. The comforting part was no matter what the circumstances were, God's promises had always reigned true. This is what we have forgotten is that we look at the words themselves instead of the source of We just got through with Thanksgiving, okay? Thanksgiving is a time where we exude thankfulness. And you'll see it on Facebook. I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that, this person, all of that. Here's the thing. You can't be thankful for something without an underlying thankful to someone. That's kind of word of salad there. Let me try this again. You can't be thankful for something because undergirding that is a thankfulness to someone. You can be thankful for your new house. You get a house, you can be thankful for it. But what lies in that? Somebody has provided the income for you to be able to pay for that. So ultimately, this thankfulness always goes back. I'm grateful for my job, which means I'm grateful to my employer. Because he took the risk and started the business, and it did well enough that he could actually hire me on. And as long as I don't drive him to bankruptcy, Maybe we got a chance. There's a thankfulness to this. So when we are thankful for what God has provided, actually what we're thankful is to God for his promises. And that's the part we're missing. We're looking at the symptoms instead of the cause. The outliers are, are the things that God does, the little parts, but the substance is in God's character. When we read out of Psalm 103, that forget not his benefits. The benefits is not the character of God. The benefits are the result of the character of God. 
You can't go to the gym and truly work out without getting strong. It's going to happen if you truly work out. You can go to the gym and sit on the bench and play on your phone the whole time. But I mean, if you go to the gym and you live, you will get strong. If you begin to go out to the track, and I am not recommending this in any way, but if you did this and you began to run, slowly over time, you will get faster and be able to go longer. Now, again, I don't advise that to anybody, okay? This is not God's will for your life. I promise you. Running is of the devil. He says, resist him and he will flee from you. That's the gospel there, folks. So it comes back to looking at the character of who God is in these prophecies. I read this last week. Let me read it again. What I believe about God is that he keeps his promises. Those promises are clearly laid out in his word. I believe 100% that God still heals today. No question in my mind. I believe that it is God's will to heal everyone, and I believe that that healing for everyone was ratified at the cross. We just talked about that a little bit. I believe that God guaranteed his will and healing through the atonement. I believe that sickness is a result of sin itself because death is a result of sin. I don't mean individual sinning. I mean sin being in the world. I believe that sickness is nothing more than slow death. I believe that sickness is nothing more than an attack from the enemy. I believe that the church today has accepted sickness as a societal norm. I believe the church today has lost the foundation of God's promises. I believe the church today no longer believes the words of God. And I believe the church today is good at making excuses when things don't happen the way they think they are. And here's what happens, church, is that we come to God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. We might have good intentions, but we're not seeking who God is. We've created a God in our own image. That is where we get all these different off-the-wall ideas that are all over the world today. Is we like, well, this can't be God. It must be here. Oh, that God of the Old Testament, that doesn't really represent God. Jesus represents God, the God of mercy and flowery words and make you feel good stuff. Except they're the same person. See, the problem is it's not who God is. We have abused his character. We have made him out to be something that he's not. We've got to get back to what it is. Who he is. What he has said. You see, when you believe the words of God, you will have no doubt in your mind. When uh, financial crisis hits in the, in the country, it happens. We go through ups and downs and all of that. You'll have no fear because God provides. If sickness is going around, you'll have no fear because God heals. If sickness happens to get you in any way, it comes on your body, you'll have no fear because you know what God's promises are. And ultimately, when you die, you know where you're going because you have no fear of death because my hope is not in this world. My hope is in eternal life with God. Your actions speak louder than your words. The way you carry yourself in society is truly what you believe, not the words that you say. But we want more chicken soup for the soul. We want more pillows with Bible verses on. We want more of that kind of stuff. That's what makes us feel good. We've got to stop feeling so good. We've got to start getting back to basics. And Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's either a true statement or it's not. He who promised, being God, is faithful. Faithful to what? Every promise that he's made. Should you ever doubt God? No. Let me give you an example of this. As the Israelites are going through the wilderness, they get out of Egypt. They're going through the, they've gone through the Red Sea. They've gone through, they saw the armies of Pharaoh. God provides manna. He provides water for the rock. Their shoes don't wear out. All of these incredible things that are going on. And you'll see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, 
especially in the book of Exodus, but other places, God constantly going back to this one event. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He'll constantly reference back to that moment to the nation of Israel. Why do you think that is? Because he told them, guys, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. Now imagine you are an Israelite. You're in slavery in Egypt. You've been there for quite a, quite a while. And here comes Moses. He says, God wants us to leave. The Egyptians are not in favor of this. Do you think Moses is nuts? You say, no, 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 no. I'm better off staying here. What do you say? How do you respond? Understanding that this man is a mouthpiece of God. How do you respond? Well, I doubt they responded in faith. I doubt they believed anything he was saying for a long time until the moment came. And then he did exactly what he said he would do. You see, the reason he always referenced back to this when he's dealing with the Israelites is because this was a moment in their history where God's fulfillment of his promise came out when nobody else thought it was even possible. They never thought it was possible. He references back to this so many times. And see, that's where we've got to be. We've got to get so convinced that this word is straight from the mouth of God, that every promise in it is true, that our actions begin to reflect the words that are on this page. We have to get back to that. So, as we do this, we're going to start with the basics of this. Okay? We are coming into the Christmas season. There is a lot about Jesus that is out there today that has come through church history. That is not biblical as far as this time of year. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to begin to look at that. But I'm going to show you in this how the prophecies that God made were always there. And it was the fulfillment of. Because we're primarily talking about, as I said last week, the one thing that separates the charismatic world from the rest of the church world is the idea of healing. They, we all have a form of salvation. How you get there might vary, but we all have a form of that. But the thing with healing is that in the charismatic world, for the most part, they will say that it is God's will to heal at all times. Yeah, we got a problem. We don't see the results like we should, or at least we think we should. But that's what Scripture says. There are outliers of that, but that's basically it. When it comes to the promises of God, all the promises that God had made were there. But how do we see them? And so as we get into this, I'm going to introduce an idea today. That again, we're laying a foundation here. Some of you guys I've done this with before. Some of you guys have never seen this. But it's the idea of what's called progressive revelation. It's the theme of the Bible in God's redemptive work, but how God has unveiled his plan and shown exactly what he's going to do from the very beginning. It's not hyperbole. It's not anything other than you can see it. Now, how can we see it today and they couldn't see it back then? Well, you know what we can do? We can look back and be like, oh, that all makes sense. It's called hindsight. Have you ever made the statement, if I knew then what I know now, I'd live on that statement. If I knew then what I know now, I have a scar on my elbow from surgery when I was in the fifth grade. And what happened is I got a bright idea of being a couple friends of mine, and we had our garage and my neighbor's garage. And in between, there were three trees, and we had a bunch of scrap lumber, and we had a bunch of nails, and we had a bunch of hammers. So guess what we decided to do? We're going to nail boards on these trees we're going up on top of the garage. It's, they didn't know about it. So that's what we did. 
And I got up to the top. Now I learned something that day. One, Newton was right, gravity is there. The other thing I learned is leverage. Because what we did is we took a one by, I think it was an eight, by yay long, nailed to the very top board of one of the trees. Put four tiny nails in the middle. Did you know that nails have different strengths? I learned that that day too. And I was getting ready to come down and I stepped on the end of the board. This is where the leverage part comes in. The board twists. I also learned another thing. I was not strong. Because I was holding onto a branch and I didn't hold on to it for very long. Down I fell and broke my elbow. I had to have surgery, pinned a piece of my elbow back in place, was in a sling for six months. Uh, it was bad. Yeah, it was real bad. I mean, still it functions today, but it's, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. But if I knew then what I know now, what I know now, I don't like gravity. I like the ground. I stay on the ground. Gravity's not my friend. Me and gravity, we don't get along in any way. I also know my limitations today. You know, you, you begin to write checks your body can't cash type of thing. That's what's my world. And so understanding this, this hindsight thing, we look back, man, if I own it. Man, if I own it. We can look at Scripture and be like, look at this. We see this picture. Let me give you an example of this from a biblical standpoint. For hundreds of years, they had talked about every prophecy being fulfilled that was necessary for Jesus to return. From the early 1800s to 1700s, you see these writers and all that, every prophecy expert like, yeah, we're waiting on Jesus anytime. But there was a problem. Israel wasn't in the land. But they looked past that. They were like, well, you know, this, this is a spiritual thing, not a literal thing, until it actually happened. Now we look back at that event and we're like, how'd they not see that? Imagine what we will see in 20 years, should the Lord carry it. That's my point. We have to look at this from the way that God looks at this idea of progressive revelation of what God has done. You, As I said, prophecy, the way we think, is uh, something spoken and a fulfillment of it. Foretelling, fulfillment. But in a Hebrew mindset, it's in a series of patterns. God, the already but not yet. God moves. So what I want to show you today is the idea of the Lamb of God. We use that term. We don't know necessarily where it comes from. We don't necessarily know what it references to, although we might have some ideas. And we don't dig in deep to understand exactly the nuances that are in there. So let's do this. What is progressive revelation? It is where God reveals in Scripture His message through stages and His plan for humanity. We would call this types and shadows. You might have heard that. It's kind of a murky picture that the further time passes out, you begin, it gets clear. It's like a mosaic. You guys ever seen a mosaic painting? You get it really close, you don't see anything. But as you back away, the picture becomes clear. And so what we're doing is we're connecting the dots or you can say following the breadcrumbs that God has laid out. So we're going to look at this idea of the Lamb of God. This is important because we're going to get into the birth of Christ. But I want you to see how God laid all of these little things out that in the moment they may have missed. But we don't because we're looking back at it. So let's start. Number one, the battle. What battle am I talking about? The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. We see the serpent, Adam, and Eve all being judged by God in this. This is the moment of sin. They ate of the fruits. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. More than every beast of the field on your belly you should go. You shall eat dust uh, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So here we see a battle is going to take place. The seed, the offspring of the woman, 
and the offspring of the serpent, not talking about baby snakes, we're talking about the enemy here, that there is a battle that is going to go on. We see that God is laying this out, that whatever the seed of this woman is, will, bruise some versions say, crush his head. But his heel will be bruised in the process. Now many will say that that was the cross, whatever. All I'm saying is he's laying this out. This is step one. Adam and Eve had a perfect life. Everything was good. No problems, no sickness, no sin, no temptation until that moment. They knew the words of God because Adam received the word of God from God, standing in the garden, said, listen, you can eat anything you want, do whatever you want, don't eat of that tree. Eve got that message from Adam. Adam was standing there with Eve. They both, he wasn't seduced, she was. He didn't stand up for her. He did not stop her. He should have. The moment he ate, sin happens. Death enters the world for the first time. And so now, there is a consequence of this. In Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, Also Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin, and he clothed them. Their nakedness was revealed to them. Now, he has created, he, they had to watch an animal die for the first time. The skins were taken from them. You can call this a sacrifice, whatever. But God made a covering for them. They tried to cover themselves. God made a covering for them. The result of their sin caused, caused death. So, we get out of that, we got this idea, does this tell us a whole lot? No. Why do we think we know so much about this? Because we've read the end. But imagine being them. Do they know what's coming? Not exactly. She knows that her seed is going to ultimately be the Redeemer. That's what she knows, but which one? She has hundreds and hundreds of babies. Aren't you glad that we cut it off at 2.7 in America? So let's look at Cain and Abel. We know the story. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, you've heard this specifically, but let me get into this a little faster version of it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, what did we say? She believed when she says, I've acquired the man from the Lord. This is the man, Jehovah. She thinks that maybe this is the God. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, Cain passed, and Cain brought an offering. Of the fruit of the ground of the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. So there are two things that are wrong here. We talked about this on Wednesday night, but in case you're not here, let me lay this out. The common thought here is the fact that what Cain brought was a bloodless offering. And there's an element of that, but here's the thing. Where were they commanded to bring a blood offering? We have no record of that. Now, as I told you, you can begin to see the outliers of, of the uh, what we would call the Mosaic Law. But all of these ideas were here early on because they practiced the idea of Sabbath, the idea of these sacrifices. So Cain's offering was of the fruit of the ground. It was bloodless. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portion. What the fat is talking about is the best. It's the choice. Abel's offering was a blood sacrifice. Cain wasn't. But that's not the only thing. There's two parts to this. In verse 3, it says, In the process of time, Cain brought an offering. It's the idea of the first fruit. The first and the best. You see the distinction between the two. Yes, one was an offering of blood and one was not. But as we talked about on Wednesday nights, you can see that there were offerings that were of the ground. So it didn't necessarily have to be a blood offering, but it did need to be a first fruit. In the process of time, Cain brought an offering. 
So when he got around to it, he went and grabbed something and brought it before the Lord. Why is this important, and how does it point to Christ? Well, let me show you how this picture completes with just this one. In Romans eleven six, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. We see this first fruit concept. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You, uh, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to, uh, to the God, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. We see this firstborn. We see Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Romans 8, 29, for he who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even in Christ, all should be made alive, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. We see this first fruit concept given. Jesus being the first fruit of the dead. The first is the best. Why did they bring the first fruit? When the womb was opened up with a new lamb or whatever, they did not know if that, that lamb would ever have another child. When you bring and you begin the harvest and you bring that first fruit offering to the Lord, you don't know how the rest of the harvest is going to go, what the yields are going to be, any of that kind of stuff. What if a storm comes through? What if locusts come through? What if something happens? So you are coming in faith, giving this to God what rightfully belongs to Him, and then trusting God to meet your needs for everything else. That is the principle behind tithing. Not a commandment, but it is a principle that is there. And so you kind of see this idea of with Cain and Abel about the first fruit offering, and it goes all the way through the Bible. So did they have an understanding of it? Somewhat, but Cain sure didn't seem to understand, or at least grasp, why God did not accept his offering. And so we see these things, this idea, this mosaic, the picture becomes clear as you get through it. Now, let's look at the next one, Abraham and Isaac. Now, this one's interesting. When we get there, um, it's super fascinating. On Wednesday night, when we get there, uh, I don't know what it's going to be, but this is chapter 22, and we're in chapter 5, and we've been doing this for several months now. So, but we'll get there, I promise. So, God tells Abraham that your son of promise, I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham says, you got it, dude. Up they went. Never questions anything. He lays Isaac on the altar, and right before he goes through with it, the Lord stops him. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, you see this. Then Abraham lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there behind him was a, a ram caught in the thicket by a storm. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now here's what's interesting. Here, he was supposed to sacrifice his son. He calls the mountain, the Lord will provide. Who provided the sacrifice? God did. So you can kind of see how this picture is becoming a little more clear. Whatever this sacrifice is that's necessary for them to be free, God will provide. You can kind of see how the picture comes now, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on there, but you've got to come on Wednesday nights if you want to know about that. Now, let's move to the Passover. We get to the Passover. We know the story. They've gone through all the plagues, 
And the Lord gives a commandment for the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of month. It shall be the first of the month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, <coughs> Excuse me. On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to the house take it according to the number of the person. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep and your goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh of the ni at night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. His head with his legs and his entrails. You shall eat none of it, remaining, or leave none of it, remaining until morning. And what remains of it until morning you should burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. So you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because we know the land is crucial, but now he's instituting this practice. Now, imagine, if you will, that you are sitting there, you're an Israelite, Moses shows up and said, all right, guys, this is how we're going to get out of this. Do you think he's nuts? So let me get this straight. We've watched all of these other plagues come in. So far, it hasn't hurt the Israelites. And now we're going to take a lamb, we're going to kill this lamb, we're going to eat this lamb, and every firstborn is going to die. But because of this, we're going to be fine. Okay, then. But yet they do it. But it wasn't just the killing of the lamb. And it wasn't the consumption of the lamb that protected. There was a key component of that. It was the application of the blood. You see, if they killed the lamb, and that was it, that angel comes through, judgment upon them. If they killed the lamb and they ate the lamb, and that was it, that angel comes through, there's the judgment. But if they kill the lamb, and they assume the lamb, and they apply the blood, it was the blood that kept them from judgment. You see, this picture begins to get more clear of what this Passover, this is something they've done for thousands of years now. They instituted this, they do this thing all the time. We've talked about it. In fact, uh, we would have had earlier this year, if not for Corona, but we had a Passover meal that we were going to have together. So you can see all of these pictures come together. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So God passes through. The firstborns are struck, and this is how he frees them. So we begin to get this picture of what this lamb has to look like. And that's the next one, is the character of the lamb. Leviticus is basically a worship manual as such, or how they administer the feast, how they do the sacrifices, all these things. But it begins to focus on the character of the lamb. We're going to move a little quicker. In Leviticus 22, the second half of verse 21, it says, it must be perfect to be accepted. There should be no defection. We saw that also in Exodus. What did it have to be? Without spot, without blood, there could be nothing wrong with it. And that is crucial to understanding the birth of Jesus, which we're going to get to here in a couple of weeks. But there's so much to this that we miss out on. So we see that the character of the Lamb, over 20 times it, has to, it says it has to be without blemish, without spot, no broken bones. What happens as they bring that Lamb in and they inspect it and they find something wrong with it? It's rejected. 
It doesn't count. You can't sacrifice any old lamb. It had to be a specific one. So the character of the lamb is becoming in picture. It's becoming more clear. The mud is starting to go away and all these things. Now, were they necessarily thinking all of these little nuances? Not necessarily. But we see how God is painting this picture for them. How we can look back and be like, my goodness. When you experience a Seder meal for the first time. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody not done it? When you experience it for the first time, you're looking at this like, how do you not see that Jesus was the Messiah. How can you possibly not see it? And yet they still don't see it. It's, it's unreal. So, now we get through this, but the lamb becomes a lot clearer in Isaiah chapter 53, because here we learn that this ultimate sacrifice isn't a lamb itself, but it's a person. Isaiah 53 verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led, led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before shear is silent. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Now, this is monumental progression here. Obviously, we're skipping a whole bunch of stuff for the sake of time. So I'm kind of going through this quickly. But the lamb had always been an animal. The sacrifice was always an animal. And now they're finding out that whoever this person is, that that sin is going to be laid upon them, and he is going to be cut off from the land of the living. This is a person. Messiah. This person is going to lay down his life. Now, did they believe that Jesus was going to lay down his life? No, they didn't. Because the scribes and the Pharisees and all had gotten in there and they adopted this belief that there wasn't one Messiah that was going to come twice. There was two Messiahs coming once. You had the sacrificial and then you got the reigning keys. And in that, they looked at it and was like, well, but you don't sacrifice a person. Oh, you know what it must be? This must be a reference to the nation of Israel itself for all the bondage and torment that we have gone through. So we are Isaiah 53, but the reigning king is coming. That's why the disciples are like, can you set up your kingdom now? Can I set your right hand? Can I set your left hand? They're politicking for position because like, what are you going to do? When he told them, like, listen, I'm going to die, but three days later, I'm going to come back. Did any of them believe it? No, none of them believe it. They're like, what are you talking about? No, you're not. We won't let that happen. You're our reigning king. That's the problem. So because of that, they had all of this stuff that was misknown and misunderstood, but here it was, all laid out from the beginning. So, we know that he's a person, but who is that person? We don't know until the New Testament it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus is that lamb. How do we know? Well, thankfully John told us. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You jump down to verse 35. It says, Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples looking at Jesus and walks in. Behold, the Lamb of God. Suddenly the Lamb had the name. He's not some figure off in a far known place that nobody knows where he's at or anything like that. He has a name. That name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist declared that. Now we know who he is. So we finally see him for his state. So ultimately, okay, he's the Lamb. But does that make him the Christ? Remember, the Christ is Messiah. Christ is not his last name. It means anointing. Messiah was the one that they were waiting on. He was going to sacrifice 
Okay, we see in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is getting instructions from an angel, he helps this Ethiopian eunuch. An Ethiopian eunuch was one that was high ranked in uh, Queen Candace's court. The eunuch one was a man who served, he was castrated, so he'd have no gumption to ever leave or do anything else. It was underneath the royal household. And so as Philip's going about his life, he hears this guy reading from Isaiah 53. <coughs> Acts chapter 8, verse 30 says, Philip ran to him, heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come to sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare this generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this is, of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, how do we know that Isaiah 53 is a reference to Jesus? Luke just told us that. Right? We use the New Testament to interpret what was going on in the Old is allowing these things to take place. So here we see exactly, if you weren't sure before, yes, that is Jesus. That lamb that was led to the slaughter, that was Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is all a reference to Jesus. It's progressively coming clear. How can they miss it? If I had been there, I would have picked up on it. No, you wouldn't have. All these dots are being connected, but it's not done. Now we see the progressive revelation of the lamb himself. In who he is, because what are we expecting from the lamb? A lamb is sacrificed. But is that all? In First Peter chapter one verse eighteen, it says, "Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." Isn't it interesting that Peter snuck that in there? What is he saying? In case you didn't know, he was the Passover lamb. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So we see Peter summarize the different aspects of the land. First we see the necessity of the land. And it wasn't with corruptible things, but we see the provision that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God had provided this from the very, very beginning. He knew what was going to happen. That the slaying that was going to take place, the precious blood of Christ, the character of the Lamb without spot or blemish, and the person is the uh, Jesus, the Lamb, the blood of Christ, as of a Lamb. So the summary of this progressive revelation is at his absolute finest. And then the last part, he lays down a new truth here, okay, that God had, had put in this. Through him, verse 21, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. You see, were they expecting that that Passover lamb, did they walk out there the next morning? Is it back yet? No. The idea of Jesus resurrecting obviously was not on the minds of any of the hearers, or they had all been waiting by the tomb like, he's going to come out soon. They were, not, they were moving on with their lives. We see it when Jesus is talking to the man on the Emmaus Road, the two guys are like, you know, they say, hey, what's going on? He's like, where have you been? We thought this guy was probably going to be the Messiah. We were really hoping, but he's dead. They were not expecting him. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. This is the resurrection. There are hints in the Old Testament to the resurrection, but nowhere was it more clearly revealed than right here. And it's because of that that we have a new hope. It's because of that promise 
that our hope is in God. It's in the fact that God raised him from the dead that we can trust him about our eternal life. Put that in the Old Testament. It's the fact that God brought them by the hand out of the land of Egypt that they should be able to trust him for everything that came after that. But did they? No. For us, it is the fact that he raised him a moment in history where a man was put on a cross, killed, three days later comes out of the grave by the power of God that our hope can be assured in our salvation. That means that if you are born again, that you should never doubt any word of the Lord. Any of it. Because he's done exactly what he said he was going to do. You guys get that? Here's the problem. We come near him with our mouths, but our hearts don't really believe what he has said. We like to take scripture and say, God, I know this is what you said, but I'm going to explain to you exactly what you mean by it. Okay? God doesn't need a wife. All right? Listen, we have to get back to be just believing what God has said and trusting in his promise. When we allow scripture to interpret scripture, there should be no doubt what God's promises are. This is where we should be. That's not where we are. And we have to be honest with ourselves or we will never get to that point. I use this example. Listen, if you want to be a singer, that's great. But if you can't sing, get lessons, don't go on American Idol. But somebody has convinced them and they have not accepted the fact that they can't sing. Get them some help. That's where we need to be, is we have to admit where we are so that we can move on from there and grow in our walk with the Lord. But this isn't the end of what God has done with the land because there's more to it. It's the enthronement of the land. We see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. says, I look and behold in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll into the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a heart of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open his seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around <coughs> the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the number of them who was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousand of thousand, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them I heard say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. We're watching the, the coronation of the Lamb of God taking his next step in Revelation 22 verse 3. And there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord gives them the light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We see the lamp coming onto his throne. This is the climax of what we call biblical salvation. 
This is where it's all going to end up. But it's not just for a moment. It's not just a little sliver of time that this happened because it is Christ's everlasting kingship. And Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there should be no more death or sorrow, crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. If you can put your faith in the things that are to come, then you should also be able to put your faith in the promise that He has made. Every one of them. We have promises to receive right now. You know what's one of them? Is that there was a promise that the seed of David would sit on David's throne and rule from Jerusalem. Has that happened yet? So we know there's a moment in time where Jesus himself will sit on a physical throne from Jerusalem and rule, thus fulfilling the Davidic covenant. But we haven't seen it. You know what you can't do? You can't do that without a nation. Isn't that amazing how God has put all this together? Guys, the fulfillment of prophecy has been huge. And yet we struggle with the little things. We can put our faith in God for our eternity, but we can't put our faith in God for our now? That doesn't make sense to me. My brain does not work that way. How can I be so confident where all of my days are going to spend, I'm going to spend, and not confident in the few days that I have here on earth? That doesn't make sense to me. And the fact is, is because we're not faced with eternity on a daily basis, that we just take it for granted. God right now, oh God, you don't understand what I'm going through. Oh yeah, he does. It's his promise. Where's the edification, exhortation, and comfort? It is all found in the promise giver. We don't put our faith in salvation. We put our faith in the one who is given. We don't put our faith in healing. We put our faith in the healer. You see, that is the distinction. We have to see how God has done this. Now, let's bring this up to this moment. We're going into the Christmas season. It's a time of year where the churches will begin to get full. Then they'll taper off a little bit until April. Then they'll go back up. And then they'll taper off a little bit again. But when you don't understand the story, like the birth of Christ was so riddled with prophecies, unbelievable, the things that God has said. The moment where the angels appeared to the, uh, the shepherds was a moment that was laid out for thousands of years and that came to fruition in that moment. But we don't see the nuances there. How they knew that that baby was Messiah. All of that. There's so much more to the Christmas narrative than what we have been taught. There were more than three wise men. We don't know what made them wise. We don't know where the star came from and how they even knew to follow it. But there's things that God laid out thousands of years prior to that moment to make it happen. We're going to go through that the next several weeks. It will open your eyes to the Christmas story like you've never seen it before. And what should it do? It should bolster your faith. Because God has always kept his promises. And he didn't just stop when you showed up. It is time for us to get back to the foundation of our faith. And that is in God's word. That's where it lies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all things that you have bestowed upon us and given to us. And all that your promises are, that we can believe them and trust them and know that they are true because you have given them. They're not in somebody that is wavering or waffling, Lord, that there's somebody who has always fulfilled his promise. 
and has always done what he said. And Lord, we put our faith, hope, and trust in you. And we give you the glory, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunities that we have to come together. To spend time together as a church family. To grow and to learn, Lord, to follow you, to be led by your spirit, Lord. To do all the things that you have called us to do. So, Lord, we thank you for every opportunity that you give us. I thank you, Father, for all things that you've bestowed upon us. That you're giving us opportunity to share our faith each and every day. We give you the glory. So, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Yeah.